0: Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. The next message in our Sexual Purity series is called Glorifying God in Our Bodies. John walks us through a passage that teaches on how to have a gospel-centered view of our bodies. This passage directly challenged the flawed teaching in Bible times that people were free to do what they wanted with their bodies sexually. What are the lessons for us today? Here's John with Glorifying God in Our Bodies, Part
1: 1. Okay, you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. Let me just give you some review, if you haven't heard where we've been, and then we're going to go into verses 12 to 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, Paul, he's asking four questions. And each one of these questions begins with, the same question, do you not know? Each of these questions, first of all, functions as a rebuke, because as Christians, you should know this, he says, but you don't. So it's a rebuke. Second, what had happened is that the problem with the Corinthians is they did not know the gospel nor the gospel's implications for their daily pursuit of sanctification. And so Paul is seeking, listen, to reintroduce the Corinthians to the gospel and to its implications, which alone has the power to motivate them to flee sexual immorality. That's verse 18a. And to glorify God with their bodies, that's verse 20b. So, first, in verses 9 through 11, what we saw is that the Apostle Paul takes up the theme of the kingdom of God and he applies the theme of the kingdom of God to the problem of sexual immorality in the church. So, just very quickly, in verses 9 through 11, this is what Paul does. He says, and This is the first point. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the first point. He he points them to a basic fact concerning the kingdom of God, and he warns that in the consummation of God's kingdom at the resurrection, when Christ returns and the new heavens and the new earth are here, the serially unrighteous will not be there. But then in verse 11, in this amazing and almost instantaneous change, he brings this first argument to a climactic conclusion, and he reaffirms the Corinthians' conversion, their status now as citizens of the kingdom of God. He says, such were some of you. You were excluded. But now he says, listen, this is not who you are. So Paul did two things in verses 9 through 11. First, by directing these believers to the consummation of God's kingdom, he's driving home the point that unrighteousness cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And because unrighteousness cannot inherit the kingdom of God... And because God's kingdom is now already present in this world, but not consummated, it must not be tolerated in the church now. His ethic is simple. The ethics of the kingdom yet to come determine the ethics of the church now in existence. Second, He not only warns with the law in verses 9 through 10, but then look what he does in verse 11. He reaffirms the Corinthians' conversion, spiritual transformation now as citizens of the kingdom of God. And he exhorts them on the basis of who they now are to live lives of sexual purity. For example, this is what he says. God the Father in Christ by the Holy Spirit is a Trinitarian work, he says has cleansed you he has washed you from your former defilement of your past sins that's regeneration we looked at that he has set you apart from your former sins to belong to him that's definitive sanctification election he's chosen you to be his to belong to him and then third he has already forgiven you and given you a right standing with himself that's justified No longer, not only not guilty, but forever declared a perfect law keeper, even though you're not justification. And Paul says, all of that has given you a glorious inheritance. You've been adopted as a son and daughter of the living God. He takes all of these gospel realities in one verse and says, look, because all of this is true of you, stop living like you're excluded from the kingdom of God. You're a citizen. Be who you are. Be who you are. Now, that was his first argument. Here's the second. The second argument that Paul makes to help believers flee sexual immorality and glorify God with their bodies is found in verses 12 to 14. Now, listen to what Paul says. Let me just summarize, and here's the point. Do you not know that your bodies belong to Christ because they are destined for resurrection? Listen to what Paul writes. Look at verse 12. Let's read verses 12 to 14 together. There are three slogans in this passage. One's repeated twice, and then it gives a second. The slogans were were, were being advocated by the Corinthians, so Paul quotes their slogans, and he responds by giving his counter slogans to confront and correct their false theology. You'll see this in a minute. Look at verse 12. Here's the first slogan. All things are lawful for me, This is what the Corinthians were running around saying, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, here's his slogan, but not all things are helpful. Second, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Paul's slogan is here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 15a. This is one of the most stunning, powerful truths I have ever encountered in terms of how to live my daily life of sanctification. It has absolutely stunned me this week as I've thought about it. There are two words that dominate Paul's arguments in verses 12 to 20, sexual immorality and body. He repeats it over and over and over in verses 12 to 20, sexual immorality and body. And what we're going to come to see is this, is that because of a radically flawed understanding of Christian freedom, some of the Corinthians were maintaining that they were free to do whatever they wanted to with their bodies in regards to sexuality. And Paul wants the Corinthians to reflect on a gospel-centered view of their body and of Christian freedom. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 12 to 20 is first of all this. It is one of the most important theological passages in the New Testament about the importance of the believer's physical body. By appealing to the gospel and its implications, Paul is going to show us that our bodies belong to Christ the Lord, the King in his kingdom. And because of that, we are not free to do whatever we want sexually with our body. The gospel-centered reality is what will motivate us to obey verse 18a and 20b. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with our body. Now listen carefully. This, this is one of the most important truths you're going to learn about Scripture in the New Testament and the ethics of Christian faith and life. This is, what I'm going to tell you is the ethic of the Christian faith in life. Here it is. And this is exactly what Paul's teaching us. When the gospel is central in your life, you can refute license without becoming legalistic. That's what he's teaching us here. Paul issues two commands in verses 12 to 20. Everything else is gospel and its implications. How many imperatives you typically get in a church for a practical Christian living on overcoming sexual sin. I just got an email this week, and this was the title, seven practical steps on how to overcome sexual sin in your life. Never mentioned one hint, not even a sentence of the gospel. This is so counter to what Paul's doing here. There are two imperatives in here. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. Everything else is gospel and implication of gospel. He issues flee sexual immorality and glorify God on the grounds of the truth of the gospel. So let's see in verses 12 to 14 how Paul takes up the doctrine. Listen, he takes up the doctrine of the resurrection. And he applies it to the Corinthian sexual immorality as the way to overcome sexual immorality and to glorify God. Now, how many of you have ever been taught the theology and doctrine of resurrection as the way you pursue daily sexual purity in your life? Is there anybody in here? Just show me your hand. Has anybody ever showed you the doctrine of resurrection as the key to sexual purity? There's not a single hand raised. Do you not know? no i don't know and you don't know and the corinthians don't know because people don't know the gospel the corinthians let me give you some background the corinthians were under the pretense of wisdom and they were arrogantly claiming with their wisdom that their body was temporary and unimportant they concluded, therefore, that it doesn't matter what you do in your body because physical matters have no lasting existence. It's going, it's going to die, and what really matters is the, and is eternal is the immortal soul. The spiritual part of man is what matters. The physical part is not important. This faulty theology is reflected in the slogans that they were advocating and living by, which we read. And there's one more slogan in verse 18, which we'll come to later. Some suggest that the Corinthians had drawn upon the philosophical tradition of the Stoics about their ideas of freedom. Whatever the precise background of the Corinthians was with their problem, they were using these slogans to express, listen, a radical misunderstanding of freedom in Christ to justify their immoral behavior. The human heart has a remarkable ability in its fallenness to justify anything. Self-justification is alive and well daily in the hearts of people. And so what Paul does is he enters into a dialogue in verses 12 to 20. You are getting, listen, a true dialogue from the first, first century church of Paul speaking with the Corinthian believers. And in this dialogue, he is confronting and correcting their false theology, expressed in these slogans. So let's look at the first one. The first slogan is verse 12. Look at verse 12. They were saying this, all things are lawful for me. This was one of their favorite slogans. They were running around in the church, all things are lawful for me. By this slogan, listen, they were arguing that they had the right, that they had the authority, that they had the freedom to act, without any restraints in the matter of sex, human sexuality. Basically, you can translate it like this. I'm free to do anything in regards to sexual behavior. That's what they were saying. Now, as we previously pointed out, there was a crisis of authority in the Corinthian church. Paul says that the Corinthians were arrogantly opposed to him as an apostle. Can you imagine arrogantly opposing an apostle? A, a big A apostle? Apostle? They were opposed to him with arrogance, and they were opposing his sound teaching that accords with the gospel, and in their pursuit of self-gratification and self-indulgent sexual license, they were demonstrating this faulty theological justification by their so-called right to engage in sexual immoral behavior. All things are lawful for me. Can you believe the arrogance of that? And so Paul is confronting and correcting their false views, and he offers two counter slogans. They say, all things are lawful for me, and so Paul says, but not all things are helpful. What is Paul saying here? In the context, it's sexual sin. The word helpful is the Greek word, which means to be advantageous, to help, to confer a benefit, to be profitable and useful. Here's Paul's point. Living by the philosophy, I'm free to engage in unrestrained sexual behavior because it doesn't matter what I do with my body because the body's just going to slump off like a huck's and die away, Paul says that is exceedingly destructive. It's not helpful. Not all things are helpful. Self-indulgent sexual license does not, Paul says, contribute to my good neither to the good of the covenant community, which is the church. It destroys it. This is what Paul's saying. This is the gospel ethic of the kingdom of God. No sin, listen, just Paul's thinking, Corinthians, no sin is advantageous. Is sin helpful? Has sin ever benefited your marriage? Ever. Paul says, Corinthians, unrestrained sexual license is exceedingly disadvantageous, unhelpful, unprofitable. It is detrimental to yourself and to the whole Christian community. It destroys everything. It is not helpful. We see this in Scripture. Just a couple of examples, and you don't have to harp on it. You know what I'm saying. The Scriptures, for example, clearly set forth the destructive effects of sexual sin in King David's family. His family for generations and generations suffered from his moral failure. Proverbs chapters 5 and 6, go home and read it this afternoon. It vividly sets forth the destructive effects of sexual sin. In chapter 6, verses 26 to 31, the Proverbs warn that succumbing to sexual temptation leads to disaster and that adultery for the one who commits it can even lead to murder and be fatal. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 32 to 34, it says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Paul, not all things are helpful. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. You've seen it on Fox News, on CNN, MSNBC, NBC, CBS Evening News. You've seen this. Every time a lover, you have a lover's quarrel back because somebody cheated on another, they come in on the Jerry Springer show. Don't watch Jerry Springer, but I know those come up. But the point is this. (laughs) They get up there and fight on stage and say, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's exactly, exactly what the writer of Proverbs is saying here. Oh, boy. The barrage of sexual freedom in our culture has prom- that is promoted by the internet, television, movies, magazines at the checkout stand in the grocery store, music, it has devastating physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual consequences. Not all things are helpful. Um, sexual freedom in our culture has led to broken marriages, increase of divorce, shattered homes, and the widespread increase of disease. Does that sound helpful? It it leaves men and women crippled with shame and guilt. It makes people feel defiled and dirty. It leads to crushing emotions of guilt and constant accusing conscience that puts you under suffocating loads of regret. It's not helpful. And so, like Paul in Corinth, we live in this sex-obsessed society that suffers from the incredible, devastating, and destructive effects of unrestrained sexual license. Paul says it's not helpful. And so. Here's the Christian ethic. Paul says, all things are lawful for me? No, time out. Here's what you're supposed to ask. The real issue in regard to Christian freedom is this, is not whether an individual is free to do anything he or she chooses. Listen to me very carefully, and I do mean this and I say it. Freedom of choice, which is celebrated in our fallen culture. Paul says, ha-uh, time out. There is no freedom of choice if you're a believer in the kingdom of God. Because he says the real question to ask is this behavior helpful to myself? And in chapter 10, verse 23, he repeats this slogan all things are lawful for me. And he joins it to the idea of building up the community. He uses this word of edification, building up the whole community. Christian conduct that is properly in accordance with the gospel, and in this context, resurrection, Paul says, leads you and is based to ask, it leads you to ask this. Not, I have the right to do whatever I choose, freedom of choice. It leads you to ask, is my conduct spiritually beneficial to my relationship with Christ and to others? Does it build it up or does it destroy it? That's what Paul's teaching here. Not all things are helpful. Second, Paul re- he replies to this, all things are lawful for me again, by stating that Christian freedom must never become a means of bondage. Look what he says back in chapter, chapter 6, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved, dominated, and mastered by anything. Here's the second part of the Christian ethic in regards to freedom. Here's the true view of Christian freedom. Paul says, Christian freedom is not intended to lead to enslavement to anything or anyone. It's a play on words that he's using here. If you you don't read Greek, don't worry about it. But it's a play on words in the Greek. And the Greek word is basically exousia, which means authority, power. And Paul says, I will not be enslaved to anything And he's referring in this context to sexual sin. Now, just really quickly, just to get very frank here, there is hardly nothing more enslaving in our life and all-consuming than sexual sin. And Paul says in this context, I will not be dominated by that. I will not. It's like, and I was trying to think, how can I illustrate it? And so here it is. Here's the illustration. It's like the Lay's potato chip slogan. Do you remember that slogan? And here's how it goes. Bet you can't eat just one. And then it shows the guy eating the whole bag of Lay's potato chips because he's just like, oh, I got to have it. I got to have it. It's exactly what happens, Paul says, with sexual sin. The more you indulge in sexual license, the more control it has over your life. You can't just have one chip. Now, Paul was a champion of Christian freedom, especially to the Gentiles. He was going around preaching, you're free from the Mosaic law. You and I spent four and a half years in the book of Galatians, so I'm not going to give you the context for that. But you know what I mean, you're free. <laughs> and Paul taught this. He said, we're free to live in the grace of Christ, but he also qualified the freedom in Christ and said, your freedom is in Christ. Christ. Your freedom is never to be an occasion to become enslaved by anything or anyone, particularly in this context, sexual sin. He says that in Galatians 5.13. You are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Listen, you can be sure that Christ and the transforming power of the doctrine of resurrection will dominate your life or, listen... You will be dominated by the fallen passions and desires of your flesh. Listen carefully. Here's your point. Here's your your application. We do give application at Paramount. Here it is. You want to talk about gospel centrality applied to your daily life? Let me tell you what Paul is saying here. When he says, I will not be dominated by anything, enslaved to anything, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I will not allow myself to be mastered by anything except the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ will master me, nothing else. The gospel will control me. The resurrection will be my all-consuming control of my life. Nothing else will dominate me. And I promise you, As Paul is telling the Corinthians, if the doctrine of the resurrection is dominating your life, you know what you're going to do? Pursue sexual purity. It will lead to sexual purity. So how often does the slogan that Paul gives, I will not be mastered by anything but Christ, influence your daily life? You can't pursue sexual purity because you don't know what the doctrine of resurrection even is. And if you don't know what theology is, you cannot pursue the Christian life. Because Paul says, it is the resurrection that will dominate me, which leads to sexual purity. And so this gospel-driven slogan was the all-controlling reality of Paul's life when it came to sexual sin. What is Paul teaching us? He's teaching us this the Corinthians failed to understand how harmful and damaging sexual sin is to everybody involved. Not all things are helpful. And second, they failed to understand how sexual sin gains control of and dominates those who indulge in it, which is what they were doing because they were not dominated and controlled by the resurrection of Christ. Now, look at verse 13. Paul confronts and corrects this false view of Christian freedom, and now he confronts and corrects a false view of the body. Look at verse 13. Here's the second slogan that the Corinthians were advocating to justify their sexual license. They were saying food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God's going to destroy both one and the other. So it doesn't matter what we do because it's going to be destroyed. What matters is the immaterial part of me, my spirit.
0: Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called Glorifying God in Our Bodies, Part 1. More from the Do You Not Know series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at paramountchurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.